How should a TV provider leverage the fast market? BBC Studios GM of Fast Channels talks content strategy, differences from traditional TV, optimizing experience, and much more. Welcome to this week's edition of Inside the Stream. This is Will Richmond from Video News, and that was, of course, Colin Dixon at the beginning for Endscreen Media. Hey, Colin, how is everything going? It's going great, Will. I am super pumped about our interview with Beth, Beth Anderson. She's general manager of Fast Channels at BBC Studios. So we'll get to that in just a minute, talking all about uh, Fast from a content provider's perspective. It's a great interview. But before we do that, how did you enjoy the Super Bowl? <laughs> I, I enjoyed the Super Bowl. I actually hosted a Super Bowl party and had a whole slew of guys over here in my house and uh, had a lot of fun. And I, I thought it was a great game, kind of, sort of, until the last couple of minutes there with the field goal and the decision to run down the clock. And, of course, the holding penalty didn't quite end the way I and lots of fans obviously hoped it would. Certainly, Eagles fans were disappointed. But overall, I thought it was really it was a I thought a very exciting game. And and Mahomes is I think really establishing himself as being in his own league in the current NFL. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It was a it was a truly great game. And I was like you, and I think like everybody really disappointed in that holding call because it really uh i yeah. think would have it would have set us up for such a great finish right um if, if that hadn't happened but uh, actually that leads me to my first story this week news story this week um because i i was working uh during the super bowl i was measuring quality with my partner simwave and i was looking at latency and i was looking at a whole bunch of stuff so that's uh, a couple of things that i wanted to talk about the first thing is that uh, i did my usual thing where i calculated the number of real streamers um uh, fox put out a news release where they talked about the fact that they had seven million uh, streams averaged uh, over the game and that doesn't really reflect how many people are actually streaming it um, because the virtual mvpd viewers they're also streaming it and they're not included uh, and that the digital streams that Fox reported are probably being watched by more than one people. So basically, I have this procedure I go through where I add those back in to get a picture of how many people were actually streaming. And uh, last year, that process gave me 17.9 million viewed the game through a streaming service. And that's about 16% of the audience. And this year, uh, by my calculations, we had about 22 million people, that's 4 million more, and 19% of the audience was watching a streamed version of the game. So that was there. And the other thing that was really interesting and quite amazing, Will, was latency. Now, usually what we've seen with stream latency, the, one of the problems is that the streams are well behind the, the game that's being broadcast on cable or over the air. So I compare the latency 
to the over-the-air signal because I have an antenna on my roof. And uh, YouTube TV was 40 seconds behind, just like it was last year. But I was also looking at the Fox Sports app. And get this, Will. On TV, over my broadband network, the Fox Sports stream was actually slightly ahead, uh, uh, around about 0.2 seconds ahead of the over-the-air broadcast. And this so amazed me, I double and triple checked it, and I was laying laying in bed that night wondering if I'd done something wrong. But I hadn't because it was confirmed by the streamable and it was also confirmed by SimWave, who'd, who'd been testing the quality of the streams. Um, and this is a first. It's They've reduced the latency so that, in effect, it doesn't matter. And that was just amazing. And they did it with a pretty good quality stream. So uh, that was, I thought, a first. And I hope to see that a lot more going forward in, in live sports. Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually, when you stop and think about it. Because all these years that sports has been streamed, there's always been this concern about hearing the cheers spoilers, from next yeah. door, the spoilers, someone texts you saying, oh my God, and you're 20 seconds behind, 30, 40, whatever it is, uh, to think now that we've potentially reversed the situation and that streamers are going to get the action a couple seconds or a few seconds earlier than the, broad, the broadcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the streamable made the point, actually, that the Fox Sports stream was... 10 or so seconds ahead of yeah. cable television because yeah. cable television is is delayed beyond traditional over-the-air TV. So pretty amazing. Anyway. Well, that's all certainly very interesting, Colin, but far more interesting is what was your favorite Super Bowl ad? And then I'll tell you mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I tell you the one that, that, that was most memorable for me, and that was the Tubi ad. Like everybody else, it freaked me out. I thought, Shoot, did I hit the smart TV button or something and end up in Tubi land? It really freaked me out. So, uh, yeah, that was, my, I guess, my most memorable. I thought that was clever also. And uh, I was already having several guys saying, Will, Will, what, what's happened? What's going on with the TV? And then fortunately it corrected itself and, and ended and everybody chuckled. So I thought that was very well done. But my favorite by far not that you asked but my favorite by far was the ad for um, popcorners with the breaking bad cast and i was a huge breaking bad fan as i'm guessing some of our listeners know and they that ad was so on the nose it was just incredible and when they brought tuco salamanca into the ad with about 10 seconds left and he reiterated some of his iconic lines and iconic behavior. Uh, it was just really, I, I really just thought it was off the charts. Um, so by far my favorite ad. And I thought there were also some very some very good ads in addition, but that was by far my favorite. You're not yeah. a Breaking Bad fan, so this is all lost on you. Yes, it probably is, I'm afraid. <laughs> you're, too, you're, you're, too busy watch, you're too busy watching soccer. <laughs> I am absolutely too busy watching soccer, so... Okay, so that's great, Will, but what was the story of the week for you? Yeah, I'll just very quickly mention that early this week, earlier this week, the, um, the news came down that Peacock is actually stopping giving access to Peacock Premium to its Xfinity 
subscribers. So new subscribers no longer get access to Peacock Premium, which is a $5 per month service. They're also discontinuing the free Peacock Premium access to existing Xfinity video and broadband subscribers as of June 26th. And just to put some sizing around this, the uh, in Q4 22, Comcast reported that they had about 30 to 32 million broadband subscribers, depends on whether you include the business subscribers or not, 30 million residential. They also had between 15 and 16 million video, Xfinity video subscribers, again, depending on if you include the half million or so business uh, subscribers that they have to video. So give or take, there's a universe of if there was zero duplication, in other words, if there were zero of those subscribers that took both a uh, both the Xfinity video service and the um, broadband service, there'd be about 45, 46 million households. But of course, there is overlap. And without getting into too much detail, there are probably something around 35 to 40, 45 million Xfinity, discrete, in discrete Xfinity subscribers that are um, that are subscribing to uh, one or both of these services, and that means that all of those tens of millions of subscribers, some of whom, to be sure, don't even know they have access to Peacock Premium, but some of them that do. And, and the last number that we had on that column, you mentioned before we started recording, they were. In Q3, the last time they reported this, they said that there were 30 million either bundled, as we're talking about, or free. And that was, of course, people who were accessing Peacock for free. And that tier of service has also been eliminated, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But there were 30 million. So we don't know how many of those actives were bundled or how many of those actives were free. Uh, but certainly, it's higher than that now, uh, a quarter later. and. Just a little bit of back of the envelope math here, if I might. Assuming that there are about 40 million homes that are going to lose access to Peacock Premium, and again, there's some percentage of those that don't even know that they have Peacock Premium, don't have any interest, whatever. But if you just try to take a blended rate of what percentage of those, let's say, 40 million homes with access, whether they're active or not, or don't know, or do know, or whatever. If you say, okay, there's 40 million, let's just say that 10% of those 40 million can now be converted to become paying Peacock Premium members at the $5 per month, which is the cost for Peacock Premium. You could pay another five and pay $9.99 per month to get Peacock Premium Plus, which is the ad-free version. But let's just focus on the number that will take uh, the $4.99 service. If 10% of the 40 million took it, then you're talking about 4 million currently bundled Peacock Premium subscribers that uh, now would be paying the $5 per month. So 10% of 40 million is 4 million per month. 4 million times $5 per month is $20 million in Peacock Premium revenue uh, per month that Peacock would now be generating times 12 is 12 months in a year is 240 million uh, Peacock premium revenue from converted bundled subscribers. So 240 million at a 10% take rate, half a billion at a 20% take rate, 750 million at a 30% take rate. It's up to everyone to kind of make their own judgment of what percentage they could convert. But this is the kind of opportunity that 
uh, Peacock is now pursuing as a result of discontinuing the bundled strategy. Yeah, yeah, and it's right in line with what Jeff Shell from NBCU, who's NBCU CEO, was saying in the last uh, earnings call. He considers Peacock to be an incredible value, and I guess he thinks nobody should be getting it for free anymore. They've taken away the free tier, and they're now taking away the bundle. I have to say, I'm starting to get a little bit uh, bummed out about these things that are getting taken away. So it's Peacock Premium. Not that I watched anything other than I just started watching Poker Face, which I really like. So that's not a big loss for me, and I will probably not be among the 10% potentially that converts. But also Netflix has taken away password sharing, which of course all of us have enjoyed for all of these years. HBO Max just took away Westworld and a whole bunch of other shows, as we talked about last week. It's kind of like, what's next that's going to be taken away? <laughs> it's going to be <laughs> yeah. t- taken away from us. It's like they're just, they're just, you know, taking one thing away after the next, and yeah. that's not. I don't think that's creating a lot of good juju well, among people. Well, this just goes right, plays right into what we were talking about with slow. Yeah. Uh, this this actually yeah. leads us directly into our interview with Beth Anderson. Uh, and uh, I've got to tell our audience, we're going to run a little bit long this week, but I think it's well worth your time to stick with this. Beth says a lot of it. very, very interesting things, which I think you will really enjoy. So, Will, I think we should get on with the interview, don't you? Yes. I'm delighted to welcome Beth Anderson to the podcast. She's General Manager of Fast Channels for BBC Studios. Welcome, Beth. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. And welcome, Beth. So let's get started and tell us about your strategy, the BBC Studio strategy towards Fast Channels, because you've been very, very active, which is why we were so keen to get you on the podcast. So tell us about your strategy. Yeah, I'm happy to. We have been in the business uh, of of Fast since Fast was called Fast, actually. (laughs) It's very funny to be an industry veteran in an industry that's only about four years of real mass industry play. Um, But we have been in it since the very beginning. Our goal or our strategy really is to bring the best of British programming to audiences where they already are. Um, I have worked in business development throughout most of my time at BBC Studios. And the wonderful thing about working in business development is you get to see the ebb and flow of audience engagement across various different media types. And so we saw very quickly that there was a lot of really interesting access that was happening in the fast space with some of the major platforms. And we said, there, that's where we want to be. Um, And so we started with a pretty simple goal of uh, having pop-up channels that maybe would be there for a a couple of months um, and then see where we go a little bit of a kind of spaghetti against the wall uh, to see how how sticky the business was and now it has blossomed into a multi-brand strategy multi-territory strategy um, to find different ways to break down accessibility um, into more manageable chunks um, as you will probably be aware, BBC is 100 years old, so we have a dearth of programming available. And it's really about finding the right opportunities with the right brands to bring the right shows to the people who really want to engage in them. And so on that point, we have three main buckets of fast channel that we experiment with. We have our single series IP channels. Uh, top of that list is Top Gear, uh, 24-7 episodes of Top Gear. What more could you want? It's fantastic. Um, 
Antiques Roadshow is in there as well, the original UK version. Um, which is still airing today. So we have lovely new episodes coming on that on a regular basis. Um, And then we also have classic Doctor Who, which is a celebration of the original 1963 to 1989 episodes, the first seven Doctors. Um, And then uh, in addition to those single series IP channels, well, we also have a couple of others which are around quiz shows. So we have Impossible and we have Doctors, which is a soap opera play. Very interesting space is uh, soap operas and fast. I'll get to that at some point in the future. Um, And then our second bucket is BBC branded channels. So we have a BBC food channel and a BBC home and garden channel. Those are really genre plays, really leaning into the niche. And we have BBC kids in there as well and available in both English and Spanish. And then the third tranche of content that we have, the third bucket, is the channel that we are looking to help optimise access and awareness of our direct-to-consumer SVOD plays. So we have a BritBox Mysteries channel, uh, which surfaces a lot of different programming that you would find on BritBox in a way that is accessible to all audiences um, across the US. Um, Then we have a series of other uh, channels in Europe as well um, that certainly factor into that genre-based bucket, so travel and history. Yeah, I guess you know know you're old when people start calling the shows that you grew up with as a kid (laughs) as classic. (laughs) I remember some of those original Doctor Who episodes. Uh, Yes, me too. I hid behind the sofa with the best of them. That was a great overview, Beth. Thank you for that. And uh, we want to get into more of the details. I'm also observing that I'm the only one on this podcast pronouncing fast, fast. I'm finally with two people that pronounce fast, fast. So (laughs) I'm completely outnumbered here with the Americanized (laughs) version of that. But I'll try to keep my concentration. So Beth, let's just talk a little bit more about the programming to start with that you elaborated on. It sounds like BBC is bringing a lot of its programming to fast channels. And, and obviously, as you said, you have a hundred years catalog to, to pull from. So there's a you know pretty deep well. But even as you were articulating all the different programs that are available, it sounds like you guys have pulled a fair amount into the fast world. Is there, are you guys measuring this like on a percentage basis of your catalog? Do you have a certain target? Are there certain shows that uh, you guys believe are more eligible or would be more appealing in a fast environment. Take us a little more through the criteria of how you're doing the program. Oh, that's it's super interesting. And I've been I've been hovering around this idea of what makes content work in fast because obviously we've been doing this and evolving the business for the last four years and we really are at the nascent stages of what this business can do. And we're very excited to find different opportunities to bring different pulse points in our catalogue, as well as different pulse points in our new catalogue, our new shows, to new audiences. And so what what really is the decision tree? Why why these ones? Why are we choosing these ones? And and, and what's next is a, is a really interesting question. I think quite often, fast, sometimes if you squint, it looks a little bit like pay TV saying, oh, it's just TV on the internet. It is. It is TV on the internet, but it is slightly more nuanced than TV on the internet. It's a much more interactive form of streaming. Um, I think, again, we're in nascent stages of what that means and happy to talk about the kind of ad load that's involved in that and, and what we can do with the internet aspect of that interactivity. But what is interesting is if you look at the pay TV space, a lot of the channels that you will see in that area and you have seen for the last 20 years have been saying, this is our demo. We are trying to hit this gender, this age range, 
and we're having to have this kind of engagement. And the shows that we're picking for our channel will have to fit, fit within that demo. And what we're seeing in Fast is that the demo is ultimately changing because it's not necessarily about your gender or your age so much as your available brain power and your mood. So if you think about the different rights models that are available to any consumer right now, we have an enormous amount of programming at the fingertips of most consumers. Um, sometimes it's limited by the number of subscriptions that someone has or access to a cable package. Um, so sure, not every single user has access to every single piece of content. But there is, generally speaking, massive content saturation in the on-demand space, which is what the audience was looking for for a long period of time. Um, but now we're seeing with Fast that kind of drive back to, you know what, I don't actually want to choose what I'm going to watch. I want it to already be playing. And so we've leaned into what programming could you really just happen upon, discover, and go, yeah, that meets my mood. That's what I want to watch right now. So if you think about something like Antiques Roadshow, um, speaking to your uh, being outnumbered, it's actually rare for me to be outnumbered as a British accent person living in America. Um, Antiques Roadshow is both familiar and unfamiliar to most Americans um, because you have the uh, the familiarity of the US version of that show that everyone grew up with and continues to watch on PBS. But it, with the U UK version, they've probably not seen those episodes before. And they, are te they tend to be filmed in very glorious um, heritage site locations in castles and on ships. And they have a completely different kind of historical bent to them. The appraisers are different. So there's a familiarity there, but also a delight of something new and slightly opulent and travel focused. So we realize that no matter when you come into an episode, you'll go, this is familiar, but different. And I could be intrigued by that but it could be relaxed enough for me to know what's coming so that I can be in the right frame of mind for that. Similarly, where you have something where you have a huge loyalty in a fan base like classic Doctor Who, I can rewatch those episodes time and time again. I am definitely an, uh, a Whovian through and through. Um, and I could watch uh, Tom Baker all day and night, a trip over his scarf, and it will always delight me. Um, again, familiar, um, a lovely idea of um, the distant future as imagined by the distant past. That means it's it's what we call displaced nostalgia, where you might not necessarily know the show, but you know the spirit of the show. Um, and so that's one of the driving forces is we stop, we stop looking at what content meets a certain demographic. And instead, we're looking at what content and programming meets a certain mood state. And we're also finding different ways to just increase accessibility, increase brand awareness across our catalog. So where we have initiatives like the amazing BritBox channel um, on, on our SVOD service, we want to make sure that people have a chance to experience that in a way that makes most sense for them. The types of shows that are on BritBox are infinite. There's massive amounts of shows on there. So we're finding a way to make it a little bit more accessible to try it and say, yeah, this is actually what I want. And maybe you want to subscribe to it maybe you don't. What we're seeing really interestingly in that area is we're not seeing any cannibalization. <clears throat> so it's a, it's a real mix, but we're really driven by serving the end audience. That's what's driving our content decisions, which means we can go in so many different directions. And we are not beholden to keeping the specific channels that we have today. We're beholden to meeting the mood of our end audience. 
One of the things that I think the BBC has always had a wealth of is kids' content, and that that is an area that you've lent into digital from very early on. You were licensing kids' content uh, when SVOD grew uh, was growing very very quickly, and now you're pretty broadly in with kids' content across fasts. So tell us, what, what do you? Why do you think kids' content makes such a good product? in inside of fasts uh it's it's such it's such a good question because i i wonder if it is the question of what makes it good or can it be good i i i think we're at the beginning stages of what kids looks like i i'm a mother myself i have a four-year-old and i know the data i see the data and i see that a lot of young kids especially will be discovering shows and spending a lot of time on youtube and as a parent i feel slightly uncomfortable about well i'm just not going to hand my 4 year old a <laughs> device anyway but if i was i would be uncomfortable about the content discovery engine that comes after uh, watching of a familiar kids piece of ip that she might discover and want to enjoy there is something about having that sense of access but also gated by brand content scheduling that appears inside the fast space that as a parent i feel more secure in switching on a device and allowing my kids to access that form of programming so i think there's a parent trust element here um, that is super interesting i also think that kids channels don't necessarily always have to be for kids um, we have a kids channel that has programming for ages 0 through 6 and, and a, a, another tranche for 6 through 12. And I'm telling you, I would happily sit there and watch some horrible histories anytime, day or night. It's like uh, drunk history, but a British version with amazing BAFTA winning comedians. Um, and I think that there is some additional access and uh, future parent uh, proving that we can do inside the, the fast space to, to bring brands in a way that otherwise will probably not necessarily get the same traction if you gate it entirely behind a paid environment. But I do think that we are only nascently in the kids space. There's, uh, there's copper compliance, for example, um, that a lot of different platforms are, are working through, making sure that their service is suitable for kids. So not all platforms have access to kids programming today. But those that do are really seeing an interesting moment where they're able to develop a trusting uh, user behavior with a parent and um, bring free access to kids programming to younger children. Yeah, I'm so glad you, you mentioned that because that was one of the things that I was going to ask you about. And it sounds like you're on top of the fact that you're comfortable with the advertising that's being placed against those channels, that it, that it is compliant and, and congruent with the content, right? Yeah, absolutely. We're really diligent about the type of advertising um, that we will allow against all of our programming and that it meets the right uh, audience that is going there and the right mood of the audience that's going there too and I will say that all of the platforms that you work with are incredibly diligent in that too you know ultimately because we as I've said as a content owner are meeting the moment for an audience so is the platform and so is the advertiser if unless you put your brands in the right place then you create a, a broken trust with the with the consumer and, and we don't we don't want to ever do that. Any 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 part of that three-legged stool does not want to participate in a bad faith engagement. So finding the right advertising, finding the right driver, finding the right content and finding the right platform is the kind of magic that happens. And we're really finding that some services are over-indexing on kids and others are over-indexing on 
um, uh, I don't know, like scripted dramas and other ones are more into food programming. Um, so it really is, even though it seems like a ubiquitous medium where everyone's kind of going in at the same level, we are seeing different pockets of behavior on each of the different platforms and we're able to lean into that and optimize accordingly. Beth, uh, let's just follow up a little more on the advertising. The, um, I guess the general question is, how many ads are you guys typically running in, let's say, a, a half-hour program or an hour program, what's ever easier for you? So that's sort of a general question first. But then to follow up on the kids' front, more specifically, uh, when you talk about vetting the uh, advertisers and, and the messages, it, is that to say that you guys are excuse me, controlling 100% of your inventory? Because we all know that in this kind of CTV streaming space, things can be a little chaotic. There are often inventory sharing arrangements. There are often various SSPs who are involved. Uh, but, you know, it requires essentially, as I understand it, it requires that the publisher, in this case BBC Studios, have 100% lockdown on its inventory, not let any third parties in, in order to meet up with the standard that you were just articulating, which I agree with you is essential in order to earn and maintain that trust. So I guess the two questions are, uh, how much, what's the ad load like and how are you guys uh, controlling the inventory? Well, the ad load in the industry is, um not quite standard yet. You, you will see different ad loads on different platforms. Some platforms pride themselves on having essentially a limited interruption form of feed, and they will uh, therefore optimize their CPMs and their, their values associated with that lower um, inventory that they're selling. Other ones will be slightly more aggressive, but what you will see generally is that it's significantly beneath a pay TV um, ad load. And I don't anticipate that changing. I think what's interesting is that the ad pod itself, because the number of minutes is, is very variable, so it feels sort of foolhardy to speak to specific numbers there, but the ad pod itself, you know, might be 30 seconds, it might be 45 seconds rather than a standard three minutes every single, you know, quarter of an episode or whatever. Um, so it creates a lot more consistency and stickiness. And what we're seeing generally in that is that uh, a viewer will stay on a feed for a lot longer because they, they know it's a very honest form of exchange. They know we've got a, a whole generation of uh, video consumers who grew up in, in, a, in a pay TV space, followed by an SVOD space, followed by this ad-supported space. And not to say that ad-supported hasn't been around forever. It really has. But we have a new user behavior that really understands. I understand in order to make a show, you need to earn money. I understand that there are multiple different ports to make that money. If I pay you upfront money, I'm going to have more reticence about seeing advertising. If I don't pay you money, I understand that you will have to serve me some form of advertising. So um, we tend to see a very honest exchange um, in, in ad uh, consumption as a result and I think also the ads just fundamentally are a little bit better now than they they used to be it's less disruptive and more in line so the the uh, ad load within a BBC um, studios fast channel is how much you mentioned it's 30 to 40 seconds within a pod which is obviously lower than usual what's yeah. the total load within an hour well, BBC it, show or it, a half hour it depends. It depends on the platform. So different platforms are taking different um, ad ad loads. So we work dynamically with the platform uh, okay. to suit their platform standards. 
Um, and in terms of actual kind of uh, sale of ad, you will see just generally in the industry, you will see a number of different uh, business models that exist. And inventory share is certainly one of them, but it's it's not the only one. Um, and we are starting to see in general um, some really sophisticated plays by platforms and their ad sales teams in controlling the ad inventory over their entire platform, which isn't, isn't it's not a bad thing. It's really about understanding where that flexes and, and really having a holistic view to an advertiser and making this otherwise quite fragmented market make sense to an advertiser. And, and it should make sense because we have incredibly loyal viewers. So rather than having a very hard line and saying BBC must sell the ads on everything, it's really about working sympathetically with the platform and um, rising all tides with the most successful attitude toward ad sales, which could be us not selling the ads. Um, in terms of kind of keeping that true north of what is an acceptable ad load, that's where we have guidelines. And I will say that our guidelines are robust. Most content partners are and most platforms are. And what's nice is that it means that all of us are on the same page about what's an appropriate ad what type of advertising we are willing to accept. Also, the tools in the background of, of ad sales are much more sophisticated now. So you can uh, remove permissions from a certain type of programming uh, ad load and you can uh, add permissions for another in quite a dynamic way as well. So it's becoming a lot more sophisticated. And I think this is where we get the real difference between fast and pay TV as, a, as an ad load space is that you can really get very specific about the type of advertising, the type of tool set, the ad stack that you're using, and the, uh, the end point, who's actually watching. Um, it, it changes because you can potentially live in a world where you're in two different households and you are served two different ads, or you have an option of having, say, an interactive ad rather than having um, three ads play for example so you can actually use a lot of households have a remote in their hands that they can interact with the television it's a it's not as passive as, as an experience as pay tv brought us which i just think that this makes for a very very frothy creative space for advertisers it's a much more high engagement high drive high brand value environment because it is served over the internet and and it is much more directive as a result and I think we're really again we're at the infancy of what this business is is is, is possible to tool up for in terms of personalization and personal ad journeys and we've seen this for generations with the amazing stuff that Hulu's done in the past with being able to say yes I like this type of ad serve me more or no don't serve me anything like this this really doesn't meet the type of things that I would buy that's a form of personalization but I think we're really starting to see where that could go so even if we're looking at the types of ad sales that we have today, the methods of, of selling those ads, who's selling them and how frequent they are, it's a moment in time. I think the way in which ads form their way into a fast feed will evolve very quickly as the entire business has done. Yeah, it's, let's, talk, let's talk a little bit about validation. Um, you're on so many platforms. Um, obviously you have these very strict rules about what can be advertised against the content, what can't be. And, uh, you know, obviously you want robust reporting anyway. Talk a, bit, a little bit about how you're able to monitor compliance, first of all, with, with your advertising requirements. And secondly, how you're able to, do you get the information you need to be able to, you know, anticipate more content that, will, that would work? Um, 
and and count advertise ads that are seen properly and unify all of that across all of the many many platforms that you're on uh it's a good question and probably not one that i'm the best expert to answer <laughs> um i i think that's really it's so specific on the platform and it's so specific on the person who is selling the ads that it's not really possible to get that picture what i will say on the kind of broader point here is that the data and kpis are still really being netted out we're still at the, at the baby steps yeah. of what it is that we think is is really significant and what it is that we're tracking as a business. Um, I think a meaningful metric is the number of minutes spent on a, a channel per session yep. per user. I think that's a really sticky metric. It shows some very um, powerful messages and is meaningful for an advertiser. Um, what we don't really know yet is the appetite for frequency uh, in the way that we do know in the pay TV space. Because the other difference here in the fast space in general is that you see an incredible amount of repeatability of programming. And this is not about looping. This is about creative scheduling still. But there is a huge amount of appetite for having the same episode multiple times on a feed. Does that carry over into the ad space? I don't know. As a user of Fast, as a, as a consumer of it, I know I probably would get bored of seeing just one same ad um, frequently, but I don't know how, I don't know when that moment is. I don't know how many times of seeing one ad yet will be disruptive to my viewing experience. And I think it depends on the quality of the ad to begin with. So I think these metrics and how we measure them and how we look into how we optimize them is, re is really at the beginning stages of development. And I'm excited to see where the ad sales business takes these data points and how they optimize it. And we, you know, look, you just need to look at what is happening in the social VOD space. If you look at the likes of TikTok or Reels, you have genuine content creators who are also advertising simultaneously. That's all interwoven, right? In, in the fast space, you have an opportunity for this to be a a premium content version of what you're seeing in the social AVOD space, uh, a kind of premium content influencer package with an advertiser where it, where the brand values meet the brand values of an advertiser. That could make a, for a very different form of ad load. And it might not necessarily be here is your interstitial, you get these 15 seconds and you get them, you know, seven times an hour or whatever. It could be this whole show is sponsored by you, or there is a, a, a an overlay, or there's a different form of engagement, or you interrupt in the middle to ask a quiz question, or whatever it might be. I think that the the way in which we think about ads being played will fundamentally evolve at the same rapid pace that we see the fast channel space evolving. Beth, if I could just follow up on uh, what you're discussing in terms of, I think, kind of the viewer experience, what, what they experience when they tune into a, a, a BBC Fast channel. Without getting too far into the weeds here, is it correct to say that if BBC Studios is following the ad load preferences of the platform partners, that when a viewer tunes in to the same channel, quote unquote, the same Fast channel, uh, from BBC, but on different platforms, they may have a different viewer experience in terms of the ad load. And I guess I'm seeing you nod. Our, our viewers can't, but I'm oh, seeing sorry. you nod. Yes. So, <laughs> if the um, so the answer then is yes. Uh, fair yes. enough. I guess the next question is, 
um, do you guys worry about the fact that it's a different experience to the viewer across different platforms? And then even further down into the weeds, and then I promise we'll kind of pull back uh, up to a higher altitude <laughs> here. But um, further into the weeds is, I assume that BBC programs, when they were initially made, were made at a standard length. So to the extent that the ad load doesn't rise to the level of ad load that was originally anticipated, how does that time get filled in the schedule such that the BBC Fast Channel is still following according to some kind of a preset timetable? So uh, uh, does, uh, does that uh, that's, That last point of your question there is the first one I'll address. We, we are not prescriptively going to a time schedule. If you think about fast as not the child of pay TV linear, but the grandchild of it, they are the child of SVOD. Right. So it's not really about prescriptively saying tune in at 10 p.m. to watch this specific episode. Right. It's about turn on this channel and enjoy this programming. So we are not prescriptively starting a show at 10 every so single hour. So the idea hour. of a grid guide, that sort of thing, a grid guide is sort of off the table from Well, I mean, BBC there's, there's a grid, but it doesn't necessarily fit by time. We're not cutting to clock. It's not prescriptively like that because we, we want to retain the quality of the original show and we're not okay. sacrificing minutes to meet a conformed clock. Um, so right. it's uh, it, it's it's a it's really different that way, and especially I mean if you think about it, some of the single series channels. If you're turning on the Top Gear channel, you don't need a new Top Gear episode to be at 9 p.m. and another one to be at 10 p.m. You're watching the Top Gear channel. Then when the new episode comes on, the new episode comes on. Um, and as a result of that, I will say, not having that prescriptive time lock leads to much longer view view times because it's not so prescriptive. Now. I think that poses a much more interesting question about how do you break new IP? How do you break a new show? How do you premiere in this format? Because you absolutely can. Um, but then how do you premiere on Netflix or Hulu? You make the show available. Um, so you make a stunt around it. And it's less about tune in at 8, 9 central to watch this new episode. But all week, tune in to see this show and we will show you this show. And there is a, a wonderful interplay between Fast and VOD. They are very discreet business models, but they are sympathetic business models where you could potentially go on and watch in your own time in an on-demand environment, but trial and, and break and discover a show in a fast environment, which is much more easy to, to discover and, and, and form. Your question earlier was an interesting one about, do, do I mind that someone is having a different viewer experience on one platform versus another? I, I would say, do you mind that when you turn on Amazon Prime and you turn on Netflix, you see different shows? You go to them for different reasons. And I would also say that what we are finding is that there isn't necessarily someone who is turning on the Roku channel and turning on Pluto and seeing the same feed and turning on at the same time. You're choosing one or the other. And you might you might go between the two, maybe, um, based on content. You might consume both. What we're seeing generally is that fast is additive to the number of minutes viewed every day. It's not cannibalistic. It's not necessarily taking away from the SFOD experience. And we like the idea of being specific to the platform. I, I, I am... I am 
all in on finding the way to make our programming work on that specific platform. And if that means that we have divergent feeds, I'm all for it. It's less about um, taking opportunities away from other people. This is a ubiquitous form of media. If someone wants to try a fast channel, they can try a fast channel. It's free. The app is for free. <laughs> so if there is divergence, it's divergence deliberately to meet the specific audience interests of that specific platform. As I was saying earlier, we, we do tend to see our channels gravitate, ebb and flow, um, where there's where's greater heft on, on one platform versus another. And in that case, it's not, oh, goodness, how do we get the other platform up to that same level? It's what can we do more? Because there's clearly an organic interest in this subject matter um, that we can lean into. And how can we how can we double down on this? So it's not just about ads. L literally, if you turn on a Top Gear channel on one service versus another, you'll probably get served a different episode. That helps explain the breadth of our programming, the breadth of opportunity, and the fact that this is really about discoverability, dipping in. If you want to have that very linear, if you pardon the pun, catch-up experience of going episodically, that's what VOD is for. This is an additional form of media above and beyond that, and it meets a different form of mental state and mood. Yeah. You know, I'm really sorry that we're going to have to finish off here i've got a couple we're going to do a couple of real short questions for future i'm just really glad beth that you're participating in will's uh connected tv advertising preview because they can hear much more from you there because this has been such a fascinating <laughs> conversation i i just before we finish i wanted to get a little bit into the future talk to us about where you see the fast market going how you see it evolving and how you see your participation in that market evolving well, I am thrilled that we are here. I'm thrilled that we're leaders in this space. And I definitely can't wait to talk about this more um, because I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of what's possible. But that's also a perfect analogy for the business. We are barely scratching the surface of where this business is going to go in the future. I'm so excited about increased functionality, increased focus on KPIs, um, more specificity on the platforms. We are so lucky because we have so many shows and as, as BBC, we have a duty to represent all kinds of different people in the UK, and we live in a global society. The resonance that we have for our programming in the UK and having the privilege of bringing it overseas, as BBC Studios does, is such an optimized for uh, the fast is such an optimized form of, of, of showing that showcasing what we can do to the world. So I'm just really excited about seeing how many different opportunities we have to bring our programming to audiences in a way that they find most accessible. I, I've said it before, and I will continue saying it, I really feel like fast is the most equitable form of media that we've seen in a generation. We as uh, essentially a, a player that is not a US studio, have a unique opportunity in this market to figure out how to bring our shows to people who would otherwise probably not discover them. And we are bringing our programming to audiences that may have previously felt marginalized before in a really fresh and dynamic way. So I'm just really excited to continue partnering with our amazing platforms and seeing which way they want to go in the future. That was great. Uh, Beth, I'm going to, I think I'm going to quote you on that most equitable form of media we've seen in a generation. I like that. I have, I have not heard that one before. You're but welcome. I do, put it, put I it like on it. a bookmark. No. The, the, other, the other quote I've taken away from this is the very uh, astute observation that fasts are the child of SVOD, 
not yes. of linear. I think that's a very, yes. very smart observation there, Beth. This has been tremendous. Thank you so much. I've learned a lot about the, the business of fasts, which I didn't know before. <laughs> and I just can't wait to hear what you have to say at the conference. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. A real pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you, Beth. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Inside the Stream is a production of in-screen media and video news, all rights reserved. <laughs>